Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. Do you have updates? I do. Okay. (laughs) Why? Nothing. But anyway, I guess I should just get to my update, right? Yes, please do. The promised Breonna Taylor update. Oh, yes. And that was episode 77 with with updates almost every episode because this is a story where stuff keeps happening, which is good. I'm glad people are on top of it. All my information is from the Louisville Courier-Journal, which I began subscribing to this summer because I was using so many of their stories and figured I'd support their journalism. And I just want to make a pitch, too, for local journalism and also for people being willing to pay for journalism. Yes. I give a lot of credit to the protesters for keeping it up since March and making sure people know what's going on and making sure people remain aware and even angry about this. But the Louisville Courier-Journal has also kept it up, and they have stories almost daily. And without strong local journalism that holds government accountable, citizens, even protesting ones, have little recourse. You need the press to be there, too. So that's just my little pitch for the press. And the Courier-Journal's battle is indicative of how much you need the press to hold officials' feet to the fire, because even though they're fighting to get information, it is not, (laughs) you know, it's slow going. But I'll start with the most recent news and then work back to the grand jury thing we talked about last time. And this is as of October 19th, the day we are recording, which is... And Tessa Duval of the Courier-Journal reported October 19th that after five months, the Louisville Metro PD has released more records in the disciplinary backgrounds of the three officers who fired their weapons at Breonna Taylor the night she was killed. The three officers are Jonathan Mattingly, Miles Cosgrove, and Brett Hankison. The paper first requested the records on May 15th. The Courier-Journal requested the Complete Professional Standards Unit and Public Integrity Unit case files on the three, and those are the two units at the police department that investigate complaints and stuff against officers. Twice they had deadlines to get this stuff, and the police department didn't get it to them, and they finally got it to them October 15th. But the 1,600 pages of report... Uh. though, are, I'm sure you're not surprised, heavily redacted. Remember how when they released the report on what happened to her and it was almost completely redacted (laughs) and it said she didn't suffer any injuries? Mm Mm-hmm. But in fact, according to the paper, some are so some of it so heavily redacted that there are actually 150 pages where all they are are like black rectangles. What is the reason? Do they well, say? Well, it's okay. funny you should ask. Okay. The department said the law allows redactions, quote, for the non-disclosure of preliminary records that express opinions and not a final decision, which hmm. is bullshit. And for those of you who don't know, any public record is available to the public, but frequently news organizations have to do a public records request mm-hmm. to get, and it have to fight, and then they get a redacted piece of shit. For instance, on their website, they have a picture of one for Mattingly. That I'll, I'll talk about what the case against him was a little later, but everything is black on one page, except for up near the top, the, the words, yes, yeah, yes, like all three yeah. together. And it's answer- almost... Like somebody was just having fun doing it. Well, yeah, like, I'll, I'll get to that. Okay. Now near the bottom of the next page is all black, except for the two words, butt-stroked, B-U-T-T, <laughs> stroked. Hmm. 
And nice. then on the next page, the only words not redacted are, no, I did not observe that. <laughs> and it's kind of ridiculous. You can't help but feel that they're fucking around, like you just said. Yeah. In fact, Michael Abate, a First Amendment attorney representing the paper, said the police department stance is absurd, and it's just more of an ongoing pattern of conduct in a department, quote, so resistant to transparency in any form that even when they think they're being transparent, they're in fact hiding the substance of the documents that they're releasing. And this mm-hmm. is Maureen again. I think he gives them too much credit. Yeah. I think they damn well know they're not being yeah, transparent. Exactly. And, and they're fucking around. The article said they blacked out stuff that had already been widely reported, as well as minor things like misfiled paperwork, which makes me think even more that they're fucking around. Hmm. The most lightly redacted were for Cosgrove, whose records were mostly about a 2006 shooting that was found to be justified because he acted in self-defense. The victim later sued, alleging excessive force, but a judge sided with Cosgrove. But that had all been reported, but still a lot of it was redacted. Mattingly's file, which was previously released by the department and reported by the Courier-Journal in May, showed he was reprimanded for a 2017 incident in which he failed to properly document the use of force against a suspect before his shift ended, or I, apparently for several days. In that case was a 2017 drug SWAT raid where the police said the suspect was trying to use a kid as a shield against them. <sighs> The guy ended up, the suspect ended up with an eye out of its socket and a broken face bone, according to a GoFundMe Ah. site set up for him. And by the way, butt stroked doesn't mean what you may have thought and what I definitely thought, but it means to be hit with a rifle butt. I was going to say, like pistol whipped butt with a rifle. I I was thinking somebody was stroking somebody's butt, but... But anyways, um, police department leadership found out about the excessive force from the GoFundMe page. The officers involved hadn't reported it like they were supposed to. The internal investigations also show Manningly was exonerated in a use of force incident from May 2017 in which he struggled with the suspect and struck the man in the face with his service weapon. And while large portions of that are redacted, it's clear says the Courier-Journal. Investigators found Manningly had multiple reasons to believe the suspect had a weapon when he saw him reach between the car seats, and he used his gun as an extension of his hand in a situation where a closed fist strike would have been justified. On Hankinson, the one who was fired for firing blindly into Breonna Taylor's apartment against policy and therefore endangering white people in another apartment, as we already know, had a bunch of sex assault and misconduct allegations against him. It doesn't say if that stuff was in the report. And he was indicted by a grand jury in September on three counts of wanton endangerment for firing through the curtains of the patio (laughs) into the apartment. But anyway, on him, there was a 2016 professional standards case that cleared him of an alleged violation of the police department's pursuit policy. It led to discipline for another officer. Heavy redactions, according to the Courier-Journal, make it difficult to determine exactly what took place and why Hankinson was exonerated. It's hundreds of pages, and most of it was redacted. Hmm. The Courier-Journal is also asking the court to make evidence in the trial for Hankison on the three counts he was indicted for public, something that Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron and Hankison's attorney, William Stewart Matthews, have asked not to happen. They filed a joint motion, the prosecution and the defense filed a joint motion, so October 15th, I think, asking Judge Ann Bailey Smith to reconsider her order that discovery, that's the evidence in the case, be publicly filed so people can see it. 
Lawyers for the prosecution and defense contend that making the evidence public could permanently taint potential jurors, and they cited unprecedented media coverage of the Breonna Taylor case that could lead to more threats of violence. But attorneys for the Courier-Journal say the public had a compelling need and right to know the prosecution is carried out fairly and impartially, and the motions were all continued to October 28th. And I think the newspaper's point is that because a police officer is being prosecuted, it's not like the prosecution of some, you know, black guy who's not a police officer, but they're all on the same team. And the fact that a lot of stuff hasn't been released and there's been a lot of fishy stuff already makes it suspect. And the lawyer, Abate, along with the other lawyer for the Courier-Journal, John Fleischaker, said, It's no Hmm. exaggeration to say that the eyes of the world are on this trial to see if any measure of criminal justice will be imposed in connection with the death of Breonna Taylor at the hands of the Louisville Metro Police Department. And the attorneys also say that the argument that public filing will taint the jury is difficult to take seriously when the case has already been subject to so much public scrutiny and so much evidence has already been made public. Recordings of the grand jury proceedings were released publicly a couple weeks ago. It'll be a few weeks when this comes out. And the police department has already released a redacted version of its complete investigation file. And, as the attorneys note, selective evidence has been released by Jefferson Commonwealth attorney Tom Wine. So it's kind of like they're releasing the evidence that helps their their side, but they don't want all the evidence yeah, released. of course not. Cameron, the AG, and Hankison's attorney have not even attempted to explain how the information included in the criminal discovery, much of which is probably already public, would reveal anything that isn't already known in some form, Flyshaker and Abate said. In other news related to the case, an anonymous grand juror from the grand jury that indicted Hankison in September continues to speak out about being able to speak out mm-hmm. about the grand jury proceedings, arguing through a lawyer that if Attorney General Daniel Cameron can talk about the proceedings, why can't he and other grand jurors? Kevin Glogauer, the lawyer for the grand juror, filed a September 28th motion on behalf of the grand juror. They don't even say if it's the a man or The rural juror. The rural <laughs> juror. I know I was thinking that. That made me laugh. Asking a judge to allow the 12 jurors to speak about the case. And the AG, Cameron, filed a counter motion. They've been going back and forth in court about it. Cameron has basically, since the indictments came out, kind of made it, if people are unhappy that nobody was indicted for murder or whatever, it's kind of the grand jury's fault is his point yeah. of view. Glogauer, the lawyer for the grand juror, noted that Cameron's statement about grand jurors being able to, quote, steer the conversation in a different direction continues to expose the grand jurors to public condemnation by laying responsibility, right, for the proceedings results at their feet, the motion says. Cameron, according to the 15 hours of tape released on October 2nd, doesn't appear to have been in the room during deliberations. And if anyone listened to our last episode when I talked about when I was on a grand jury, the prosecutor is not in the room when you deliberate. But he continues to make, quote, very definitive statements, unquote, about what happened, Glogauer says. Hmm. Quote, that continues to build courage within our client that they're doing the right thing, Glogauer said. They're attempting to go through the appropriate avenues to speak out and to make sure that whatever is getting to the public is the full truth and not just the one side of the assertions that are coming from the Attorney General's office. Although audio recordings of the evidence presented to the grand jury have become public, neither the prosecutor's recommendations nor the grand jury deliberations were recorded. Those recordings indicate 
conspicuous omissions during the presentation, Glogauer's mm-hmm. motion said. At a September 23rd press conference, hours after the grand jury's decision, Cameron, the AG, said that his investigation didn't include how the no-knock warrant for Taylor's apartment was obtained and that the three officers who fired their weapons at Taylor's apartment the night police killed her had, quote, no known involvement in the preceding investigation or warrant process, Glogauer wrote in the motion. Jurors asked questions about evidence they never got to see, including additional body camera footage and witness sketches, according to the motion. Terms such as reckless and manslaughter weren't stated in the 15 hours of recorded proceedings. Words like murder and homicide were mentioned only a few times, and all were outside the context of Taylor's death. Quote, when it was all over, it certainly appears they were only given the option of indicting three counts of wanton endangerment, Glogauer's motion said. The Courier-Journal writes that the prosecutors took the decision for a murder indictment out of the grand jury's hands, deciding Kentucky's liberal self-defense laws justified the officers' actions because Ken Walker, Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, fired at them first. The Courier-Journal had, I haven't listened to the tapes, but the Courier-Journal had a team of several reporters listen to them. And they write that the tape show events quickly spun out of control when officers broke into Taylor's apartment door and were met by gunshot fire by her scared boyfriend, Kenneth Walker. Startled, police unleashed two volleys of gunfire in response, with one officer fearing they had walked into an ambush and a detective outside saying he saw muzzle flashes through the curtains and blinds lighting up the room. And he fired at those that would have been Hankinson, not realizing that they were his own officers. Hmm. Within minutes, as we know, it was over. Taylor, who was unarmed, was dead in her hallway, shot six times by police. Among the startling revelations the grand jury learned from the tapes were no master plan existed for the search other than what was written on a whiteboard, according Mm. to Detective Herman Hall of the Attorney General's office. Another detective from the office said the warrant was executed as a knock and announce. Neighbors dispute that with all but one saying they never heard anyone shout police. And as we know, Kenneth Walker didn't hear police, Mm, and neither did Brianna Taylor. Hankinson, the one fired in June for firing blindly into the apartment through the patio curtains, said in a radio communications that a subject was, quote, barricading inside Mm. the apartment with a rifle that looks like an AR, which Mm -hmm. an automatic weapon, I guess. In fact, Taylor's boyfriend, Walker, had a Glock 9mm handgun, and he fired once, and he surrendered without incident. Neighbor Jack Schuler said there were so many gunshots it sounded like he was at the OK Corral. Another neighbor, Elaine Williams, said when she opened the door to her apartment, she heard an officer say, reload, reload, let's do what we gotta do. Officers interviewed 15 residents, and again, only one said they heard somebody shout police. And I think he initially didn't say that and changed his yeah. story, although it doesn't say that in this story. A woman who called 911 and lived nearby told investigators an officer on scene told her in a recorded Facebook Live video that some drug-dealing girl shot at the police. <laughs> she, she asked if he was sure, and he reiterated, some drug-dealing girl shot an officer. Taylor, as we know, hadn't shot anyone, and the Courier-Journal stresses that, and she had no drug history. Cosgrove, who the FBI concluded fired the fatal shot at Taylor, described a loss of senses like he was in, quote, a cave of complete, utter silence, unquote. 
Hmm. Cameron, the AG, said redactions comprise only three minutes, 50 seconds of what... He got like two days to redact the tapes before mm-hmm. they were made public. Sam Aguiar, representing the Taylor family, praised the grand jury and said, and they were stonewalled every step of the way by a prosecution team that had a predetermined outcome and disingenuous agenda. Mm. It's clear that justice for Breonna Taylor was not part of the agenda for the Attorney General, unquote. And I promise that I will link this article and others <laughs> regarding the case by the time this episode is out. Yes, yeah. very good. Yeah. It's a, always changing, hopefully right. for the better. Right. And as far as updating our website, what I'm going to do is go backwards, like do our most yeah, recent articles that makes and sense. go backwards. But anyway, those are my two updates. Thank you. Now I'm excited um, about yes. hearing what you've got going on. Yes, I know, because I haven't told you about it. And I will talk about my source material later. Okay. I will talk about it, but I don't want it to, like... Oh, spoil. M- yes, exactly. But I will tell you this. Um, I got the idea to do this. I can thank an old co-worker of yours, Joe Owen, uh, who writes... Are you going to leave that in here? There? Yeah. Yeah, I'll leave it. He might listen. I'm sure he does not. Well, what if his wife listens? She doesn't either. I can absolutely guarantee it. I couldn't read his damn things because they were all in the present tense. Yeah, they're in the present tense. He's been um, writing writing a This Day in Maine History for Maine's... 1820 is the year that Maine became a state as part of the... Missouri, Missouri compromised. Yes, the Missouri compromised to allow a slave state and a right. free state. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. But anyways, 1820, so it's our bicentennial. And of course, because of COVID, we didn't have the big celebration we were supposed to have. All the parties have. got canceled. He's been writing a daily little item in the paper. And this was one of the items one day, or it was part of it. And it caught my eyes. Mm. All written in the... In present tense. Present tense. Which, well, a lot of historians write in the present tense or speak I know. in the present tense. It makes it very difficult to read. I'm I know it does. Saying. I don't like it either. And neither does Dad. Good. We've discussed it at well, great length. It's unanimous then. Should I just get started with my story? Get started, baby. The winter of 1835 to 1836 had been a very cold winter in New York City. So cold that the Hudson River froze and people could walk across the ice to Hoboken, New Jersey. Saturday, April 9th, 1836 was one of the first days the river had thawed enough to let steamboats come down the river from Albany to Manhattan. Sometime after midnight on the morning of April 10th, Rosina Townsend was asleep in her bed, her companion for the night asleep next to her. Rosina leased a house on Thomas Street, which is near Broadway and City Hall in Lower Manhattan. Rosina awoke to a knock on her bedroom door. It was a man asking her to let him out of the house. Rosina yelled at him, get your woman to let you out, and went (laughs) back to sleep. Her bedmate didn't even wake up. The front door of her residence was locked up at midnight, with a lock that needed a key from the inside as well as the outside. None of the nine other women who lived in the house came to ask Rosina for the key, so she thought little of the interruption in sleep and didn't think about it again until later. About 3 a.m., there was a loud knock on the front door of the house. Rosina looked out of her bedroom window, which was on the first floor of the house, and had a view of the front steps. She recognized the man as a regular visitor of Elizabeth Salter's, one of the residents. His arrival was expected, so Rosina lit a lamp and went to the front door to let him in. The visitor went upstairs to Elizabeth's bedroom. 
Rosina felt something seemed odd and out of place. A lamp, one of a pair that were usually in two of the upstairs bedrooms, was lit and placed on a table in the back parlor. She could see it down the hall from where she stood. She walked down the hall and into the room and noticed the door to the backyard was open. This door didn't have a keyed lock. It was kept secure at night by a bar across the door. Anyone who wanted to open the door from the inside could have. The backyard was large, but totally enclosed by a fence, which was at some points eight and others 12 feet high. The only part of the yard that had no fence was one side that was the back wall of a neighbor's stable. On the roof of this building, pickets had been installed to keep people out. The backyard was about 30 feet wide and 60 feet deep, and along with a garden, had a cistern and furniture, and there was a privy. For those of you that don't know, an outhouse. outhouse. Rosina figured either a guest or one of the women who lived in the house had gone outside to use the privy, although she thought it was kind of odd considering that all the bedrooms had chamber pots and it was still pretty cold out. There was still snow on the ground from a recent late-season snowstorm. Rosina went back in her room and sat down but didn't return to bed, though she nodded off a few times. After about ten minutes, she went back to the open back door, which she had left unbarred in case someone had been in the privy. She called out, who's there, a couple times in the darkness, but there was no answer. Rosina went upstairs to see which bedroom was missing the lamp and if someone in one of the rooms had gone outside to pee. The first bedroom door she tried was Maria Stevens. It was locked from inside, which wasn't a surprise because Maria was entertaining an overnight guest. Mm. She tried the second door, which was Helen Jewett's bedroom. The door was unlocked and swung open. Smoke poured out of the room. A frightened Rosina pounded on Carolyn Stewart's door across the hall, yelling, Fire! As all the sleeping residents and the guests of the house awakened and came out of their bedrooms, Rosina ran down to her room, opened the window, and screamed fire into the street. A watchman stationed at the corner, only about 60 feet away, heard the call and came running. Another watchman from a few blocks away was soon there. Meanwhile, Rosina and Maria Stevens entered Helen's room to try to save her and her companion from the smoke. But Helen was already dead. Her companion was gone. The fire was pretty much out by then, but Helen's nightgown was burned away. Her skin on one side of her body was brown and burned. She had three large gashes on her head, and the blood had soaked into her pillow and under her body. In moments, there were four watchmen at the house. One of the watchmen, seeing a group of disheveled men, thought he was coming to break up a fight. But soon the watchmen and the women were pitching in to put out the remaining smoldering fire, using pots from the kitchen and the backyard cistern to throw water on the fire. As for the visiting men, well, Rosina's companion had ordered her to, quote, compose herself. Then, oh. he and all, then he and all the other men who had been staying at the house took off as soon as they could get out the front door. Chicken One shits. Of, I know. One of the watchmen ordered that no one should leave until they had been questioned, but by this time not only were the male visitors gone, a third-floor female resident had slipped out as well. 1836 was eight, eight years before New York State passed the Municipal Police Act, and New York City did not have an official police force yet. Instead, the streets were protected by watchmen, who were usually laborers who needed extra money. They were stationed every few blocks to watch out for fires and crime, and their presence was meant as a deterrent for criminals. There were also full-time watchmen and police employed by the city. George Noble was assistant captain of the watch, and he was on duty at City Hall Park when he heard about Helen's death. George and a couple watchmen headed over to 41 Thomas Street at about 4 a.m. At about 4.30, Dennis Brink, constable of the 5th Ward, was at his home nearby when a watchman summoned him to the scene. 
Although it was still dark, the watchmen searched the backyard for any evidence they could find, speculating that the perpetrator had escaped through the open back door. At daylight, one of them found a hatchet near the back fence. Mm. A watchman went over the fence into the backyard of a na- the neighboring house and found a man's cloak on the ground about 15 feet away. Captain Noble and Constable Brink figured Helen's killer had dropped it while fleeing the scene. The murderer would have had to climb over several fences to escape, since that yard, like Rosina's, did not have an outlet to a street or an alleyway. The two police questioned the women who lived in Rosina's house. Rosina told them the dead young woman's name was Helen Jewett, and she was from Hollowell, Maine. In her book, The Murder of Helen Jewett, Patricia Klein-Cohen suggests that the way Helen was pronounced in the in 1830s New York must have also sounded like Ellen because the two names were used interchangeably in police and newspaper reports. Mm. And also this was my sole source was this book, mm. The Murder of Helen Jewett, because the library usually that I used to research was... Um, Damn COVID. Yeah. But also, this book is so... I can't even tell you how much research this When was did. it written? It was published in 1998. You wouldn't believe the things she checked. I'm only talking about a very, very small part. It's a 400-page book, but it's got so much information. It's unbelievable. Oh, Anyways. Good. Rosina told the police that usually on Saturday nights, Helen had a visitor who went by the name Bill Easy. <laughs> but that particular night... April 9th, Helen had asked Rosina not to allow Bill to come in because she was expecting someone else. At about 9 or 10 that evening, a man came to the door who Rosina recognized as Frank Rivers. Rosina told police Frank was wearing a cloak that was covering his face, but she could tell by his voice, manner, and build and the small part of his face that she could see that it was not Bill Easy. Frank went up to Helen's room and was still there at 11 when Helen called for a bottle of champagne and Rosina brought it up to her room. Rosina told police that she had seen the back of Frank Rivers' head lit by candlelight as he lay reading. Frank Rivers had not been seen leaving the house, and no one else had come to visit Helen. Rosina, or one of the other young women, knew where Frank Rivers worked and told Noble and Brink. Even though it was 6.30 on a Sunday morning, there was someone at the place where Frank worked who was able to tell the police his real name was Richard P. Robinson, and he lived at Mrs. Moulton's boarding house at 42 Day Street. This was just about the area of the former World Trade Center buildings and about a half a mile from Rosina's house. When the police knocked on the door, it was answered by a servant girl who brought them to Richard's room, which he shared with James too. James woke up and let the police in the room where Richard seemed to be asleep. James shook his roommate awake and Richard woke up and put on his pants. Dennis Brink noticed some kind of white paint or whitewash stain on one of the pant legs. Then uh, Noble and Brink, (laughs) that's a new TV show, (laughs) asked Richard to come to the police office with them. And James, too, said he'd come along to keep his friend company. While the young men were dressing, the police asked Richard if he owned a cloth cloak. He told the police that while he had a cloak, it was made of camblet, which is a fabric made of wool and silk. I had to look Mm. it up. And it was hanging in his room. I couldn't find anywhere in my research that the police asked to actually see this piece of clothing, which would be the logical question they would ask. Like, oh, you do have a cloak? Can we see it? Yeah, but you would think. Um, I assume they didn't. It wasn't mentioned. Richard put on a coat, not his cloak, and the four men took off for the police office. The two police later testified that Richard was very calm and incurious about their visit that morning and only showed some signs of agitation when their carriage passed by the police office building and continued towards Thomas Street. While still en route, 
Dennis Brink told Richard that Helen Jewett had been killed and he was being arrested for murder. Richard was being arrested for murder. Richard didn't show much emotion even then, according to police. By the time the two police returned to the crime scene with the two young men, there was quite a gathering in the parlor of 41 Thomas Street. The eight women who lived there, seven watchmen, William Sherman, who was the city coroner, and Oliver Lowndes, who was the highest ranked police magistrate in the city. Luckily, it was a very large room. The house was two townhouses that had been made into one, making the parlor a large room, 33 feet wide. And this was a luxurious house. It was two town, you know, house type houses that had been made into one home mm. and in the book she says it had two like curving staircases in the front hall that joined on a, a landing and then went up it was it was pretty oh, ornate sounds nice i don't think it's still around I, I think there's like a cvs or something there now shortly after the four men arrived two neighbors showed up mary barry and mary gallagher who are madames of neighbor and brothels helen had lived with mary barry previously and spent about two years in her house I know you don't watch the um, Great British Baking Show, but no. there's a but there's a a famous like cookbook writer named Mary Berry who's one of the judges. Oh, that's a, funny. <laughs> According to court records, Mary Gallagher asked Richard what induced him to commit so cruel and, a, and barbarous an act. And Richard said, Do you think I would blast my brilliant prospects by so ridiculous an act? I am a young man of only 19 years of age yesterday with most brilliant prospects. There's another man's handkerchief under the pillow with his name in full upon it. I am not afraid that I shall be convicted. I'm sure that's kind of paraphrase for what he actually said, mm. but who knows. One of the watchmen had found a handkerchief under Helen's pillow. It was silk and had George Marston's name embroidered on it. Mm. How convenient. Yes. How funny. It's funny. And that how funny Richard knew yeah, about it. I know. He happened to know that. Apparently, Mary Gallagher liked what she heard from Richard, whom she had never met before. She said to him, God grant that you may prove innocent for the sake of your poor mother. I picture that she said it with like an Irish accent. Yeah, that I can, yeah, yeah. Dennis Brink put the kibosh on this little tete-a-tete and told Mary not <laughs> to talk to Richard. In fact, no one should be talking to him until all the evidence was gathered. Back in those days, part of an investigation was to bring the murder suspect to the crime scene and make him or her look at the body. Police hmm. would watch how the suspect reacted to the victim. Hmm. When Richard Robinson looked at Helen's burned and bloody body, they noted his lack of emotion. He continued to maintain his innocence and told them he had been home before midnight the night before. At about 9 a.m. that Sunday morning, Dr. David Rogers and Dr. James Kassam, who had been summoned by William Sherman, the coroner, arrived to do the autopsy on Helen. Dr. Roberts was known as an expert anatomist and surgeon. The autopsy was done right in Helen's room. After Ugh. the two doctors removed her from her bed and put her onto the floor. This was the practice back then. They determined that the wounds to Helen's head caused her death, and she had probably been struck in her sleep based on the position she'd been found and the peaceful look on her face. Mm. She hadn't struggled. Yeah, they're very scientific back then. Mm -hmm. She hadn't struggled in death and probably died instantly, and she had burned, been burned after her death. Once that was taken care of, the coroner had to assemble a coroner's jury. This is how they used to do it back then. Anytime someone died under suspicious circumstances, the coroner would just grab 10 people, or men, I should say, from the street and make them be a jury. I would probably say white men. 
Well, yeah. Although that neighborhood, uh, according to this book, was mixed, uh, Even was quite so. integrated, but yeah. yes, probably. They would listen to witnesses on the spot and decide whether or not the, sus- the suspect should be arrested. Elizabeth Salters and Emma French, Helen's housemates, told the jury they saw Richard arrive the night before and go upstairs with Helen. Mary Barry also testified. Remember, Helen had lived around the corner at Mary's house until recently. Mary said that Richard Robinson had been visiting Helen on a regular basis for the past year and went by the name of Frank Rivers. The watchman who found the hatchet and cloak told the jury about it. Dennis Brink testified about arresting Richard. And Dr. Rogers read the jury his autopsy report. James, too, Richard's roommate, was still at the crime scene with his friend Richard. The police had most likely made him stay to be a witness. I'm sure he was, like, thrilled that he offered to go along. James also testified for the coroner's jury. He told them that he and Richard had tea together with some friends Saturday afternoon. At 7.30, they went for a walk and went their separate ways about 8.30 p.m. near the American Museum on Broadway. James told the jury that he was at Rosina's house that evening from about 9.30 to 10.30, but he stayed downstairs in the parlor and only talked to Elizabeth Salters. He went home at 10.30 and was asleep by 11.15. James testified that when he woke up sometime around 1 a.m., Richard was in bed. James said he asked Richard what time he'd gotten in, and Richard said 11.30. James said he really couldn't be sure of the times because it was dark in the room and he was sleepy. James said he thought Richard had only known Helen for a few weeks, which was a lie, and the women who worked at the house knew it was a lie, and so did Mary Barry. So I don't know why he, he was just trying to protect his stupid friend, I guess. When shown the cloak that was found near the crime scene, James told the coroner's jury that Richard might have had a similar one, or as one newspaper reported the next day, quote, Witness said he don't know the cloak, but has seen the prisoner wear a cloth cloak similar to the one shown him, as near like it as one cloth cloak is like another. (laughs) The coroner's jury declared, It is the opinion of this jury from the evidence before them that the said Helen Jewett came to her death by a blow or blows inflicted on the head with a hatchet by the hand of Richard P. Robinson. Richard was brought to Bridewell, a crumbling old, old jail that had been run by the British during the Revolutionary War. In 1836, it was used as a debtor's prison and a holding cell for prisoners about to be indicted. By Sunday afternoon, newspaper reporters were at Bridewell to see the arrival of the presumed killer. Richard arrived, according to the Herald, with, quote, his countenance clear, calm, and unruffled, and on being put into his cell, his last request was for some cigars to smoke. In the meantime, Rosina entertained visitors with the story of the night before, while watchmen led men and boys through the house to view the corpse. They used to do that all the time, though. There was another one I read about where the family, it was one of those farm murders where families were murdered. Oh, yeah. It was in the 1800s. I guess people, you know, they like to see it. But women weren't allowed to. They didn't have TV or the internet back then, so they needed something to entertain them. No kidding. By about 4 p.m. Sunday, the watchman stopped the spectators from coming in, but allowed James Gordon Bennett, editor of the New York Herald, to enter the room for a private viewing. Bennett wrote about the elegant house and Helen's extravagantly furnished room. His description of her corpse is uh, over the top. I could scarcely look at it for a second or two. Slowly, I began to discover the lineaments of the corpse as one would the beauties of a statue of marble. It was the most remarkable sight I ever beheld. I never have and never expect to see such another. My God, exclaimed I, how like a statue. 
I can scarcely conceive that form to be a corpse. Not a vein was to be seen. The body looked as white, as full, as polished as the pure Parian marble. The perfect figure, the exquisite limbs, the fine face, the full arms, the beautiful bust, all, all surpassing in every aspect the Venus de Medici's. For a few moments I was lost in admiration at this extraordinary sight, a beautiful female corpse that surpassed the finest statue of antiquity. What a freak. I guess he didn't notice all the autopsy wounds. Right, and the burns. Open. No kidding. <laughs> James Bennett described Helen's room, in which she had some books by Lord Byron, Sir Walter Scott, Edward Bulwer-Lytton, copies of the Knickerbocker, which was a monthly literary magazine. She had a picture of Lord Byron on her wall. He was like her favorite author, I guess. Mm. She had a journal in which she copied poems and quotes that she liked. And she had a desk where she wrote letters. She had expensive stationery with pens and ink and sealing wax and all that stuff. In a trunk were over 90 letters from admirers and friends, most to her, although some were from her to other people. The police took them as evidence. James Gordon Bennett wanted them so he could print them in his newspaper. Of course. But Oliver Lowndes, the police magistrate, wouldn't allow it. Bennett eventually was able to publish one letter. James Gordon Bennett, impressed by Helen's highbrow taste, wrote, She was a remarkable character and has come to a remarkable end. But was Helen remarkable? Some thought so. Her murder was a sensation at the time, written about in newspapers across the country and inspiring pamphlets and books. And even in recent years, there was a screenplay written. Well, it was based on her. It wasn't like factual. I looked to see if there had ever been a movie or anything about it, but it was never made into any movie that I saw. Right. While New York City at that time, with a population of about 270,000, was not exactly safe. This type of deliberate, premeditated murder was rare. People were as violent as ever back then, and assault was common. There were dead bodies daily that had to be investigated, but if those were homicides, they were more on the order of manslaughter than murder. In the year of Helen's murder, 1836, only two capital cases of murder went to court in New York City. Also, just the fact that she was a young, beautiful sex worker, Killed by a young, good-looking client made for a juicy story. Helen was fairly well-known by a lot of men in the city by sight or reputation. Even the mayor of New York at the time, Cornelius Lawrence, paid a visit to the crime scene. So she had some well-placed clients. She was like on the upper echelon of sex workers. The Herald wrote, Ellen Jewett was well known to every pedestrian on Broadway. Last summer, she was famous for parading Wall Street in an elegant green dress and generally with a letter in her hand. She used to look at the brokers with great boldness of demeanor and had a peculiar walk, something in the style of an English woman. I have no idea what that means. Maybe some of our British listeners can tell us. Her presumed killer seemed to be a young man like so many in the city, from a small New England town, from a good family who worked as a clerk and lived in a boarding house. Newspapers at the time liked to call killers monsters and fiends, but Richard Robinson didn't seem like a monster. On Tuesday, April 12th, one of the New York papers, The Transcript, wrote, It is not to be wondered that such an excitement does exist as was manifested in every part of the city yesterday in relation to this dreadful and almost unparalleled atrocity. The high respectability of the family and the connections of the unfortunate young man who is charged with aggra the aggravated crime, his excellent character and conduct, his youth, the superior accomplishments, beauty, and attractions of the poor murdered girl compared with those ordinarily possessed by the common herd of unfortunates. The deliberate 
premeditated, ferocious character of the assassination and the desperate means which were resorted to to prevent exposure and detection, all combined to invest the catastrophe with an interest and horror that have rarely, if ever, been connected with the occurrence of any homicide, however heartrending and awful, in any country. Does that sound something like your newspaper would write? Exactly like something. On Wednesday, the Sun wrote that Richard, quote, still appears perfectly calm and unmoved and wholly maintains his innocence of the horrible crime which he stands accused. The excitement throughout the city in relation to this melancholy business continues unabated. The cold-blooded, deliberate, and savage manner in which the unfortunate girl is massacred, her well-known reputation for beauty, intelligence, accomplishments, and gentility of appearance, the youth of her supposed murderer, and the high reputation in which he was held by all his friends and acquaintances, his general mildness of disposition and correct deportment, all these circumstances tend to increase rather than diminish the agitation of the public mind. Both the Sun and the transcript were known as penny papers, small four-page volumes that were about the size of a regular letter-sized sheet of paper nowadays, or maybe a little bit bigger. They had just come into fashion in the few years before Helen's murder. There were several at the time of the murder, the Sun, the transcript, and the Herald, and one that started shortly after the murder, the Ladies' Morning Star, whose purpose was to write stories in a more genteel, digestible way for the ladies, (laughs) more delicate temperaments. They were precursors to what we call tabloids today, and they all competed to get the latest news on the murder. Because of the fierce competition between these papers, which were sold by newsboys on the street corners or as subscriptions, the publicity about the murder was kept going for months. Soon papers around the country began reprinting the stories. There were a lot of the other type of newspapers at that time in New York as well. The New York Times, the Evening Post, Commercial Advertiser, the Morning Courier, Journal of Commerce, etc., who ignored crime stories. These papers cost about six cents apiece and were larger size, about four times bigger and made with 100% rag paper. They were called blanket sheets or later broadsheets, and they were normally sold by subscription to businessmen, and they didn't report much local news because they figured that people already knew it, I guess. (laughs) They did like to report on natural disasters and transportation accidents and wars and train wrecks and ship sinking and stuff like that. To them, that was news because disasters had an effect on the economy and other aspects of life, but apparently someone getting murdered wasn't news to them. However, yeah. because Helen, the Helen Jewett case had become such a sensation, some of the blanket papers starting to write about it after a couple months of the penny papers reporting about it. The other way readers heard about the story was through pamphlets produced by printing companies. These pamphlets had started out in the previous century as small booklets that would have something like the transcript of a minister's sermon about a murder at the murderer's execution or a criminal confessing to a crime. They were supposed to be stories with morals or cautionary tales. They evolved into more elaborate storytelling by the early 19th century. Then they were like small books. They were 16 to 20 pages, and they had more detailed narratives and little pictures and stuff. The story of female victims, especially those in relationships with their killers, were very popular then as they are now. Mm, Yes. Things have not changed. The Helen Jewett case was a natural for this. However, while the pamphlets took months to print and were not breaking news, the penny papers were walking a thin line of reporting the story while knowing that what they wrote could sway a jury at trial. Richard Robinson loved the attention. He dropped notes out of his jail cell window to the crowd outside that read, Not Guilty. He reportedly yelled out, I am innocent and I shall prove it tomorrow. It will all turn all right, out right. See if it don't now. 
much of what the competing penny papers wrote was embellished or fabricated in order to sell stories. And the Herald, James Gordon Bennett, hinted that some of the other women in the house, or even Rosina Townsend, the proprietor, proprietess, whatever you want to call her, may have killed Helen out of jealousy or to steal her jewels. Right. The son excerpts from what it claimed were Richard Robinson's journal that made him seem like he may not have been the mild-mannered clerk he appeared. Hmm. Here's just one excerpt. Most youths at 17 or 18 years of age take pride in boasting of their amours, of their dissipations, and their wild exploits. I have, however, no taste for such exposures. If I had, I could mention things that would make my old granny and even wiser folks stare, notwithstanding that I'm young and look very innocent. Hmm. Sounds to me like more like humble bragging to me. Yeah. He also wrote of his boss, Joseph Hoxie, cursed he be twice in all his family forever when he was writing about his crappy salary of $60 a year, which mm. is worth only about $1,700 in 2020 dollars. Right, but it was cheaper to live The economy's different, I know. It was a pretty poor salary, apparently. Yeah. The son also wrote, The striking emaciation of his frame and unnatural glaring of his eyes give evidence of the fearful war that agitates his bosom. The same day the son printed those excerpts from Richard's diary, the Herald printed a letter written anonymously by a man who said he was Helen's real killer. He hid under the bed and killed her while she and Richard slept. He wanted to frame Richard for the murder, but he was now regretful and wanted to clear his conscience and Richard's name. The other paper said the letter was obviously fake, and the Herald never mentioned it again. And after a week, the Herald stopped hinting that Richard might be innocent. Papers didn't report much about Richard's background, only that he was from Durham, Connecticut, was 19, and was employed by Joseph Hoxie as a clerk. And Hoxie owned a fabric store. The Herald said he was, quote, remarkably handsome. The son said he was a young man of excellent general character, fine manly appearance, and most respectable connections, not yet 20 years of age, and was much esteemed by his employer, Mr. Hoxie, and many others whom we yesterday heard say had known him long and intimately. Hmm. Joseph Hoxie was known in New York and admired as the former head of a private school for boys and later a cloth merchant. He was related to Richard by marriage, and Richard was one of several young male relatives that were clerks in Joseph Hoxie's establishment. Richard was the eighth child in a family of 12, which was two mothers over 35 years. Father's first name was never mentioned all through that book. She just kept saying his father, which annoyed me. Yeah. That's that's a missing pieces point off. Yes. Um, had served his father had served eight terms in the Connecticut legislature and was a gentleman farmer in Durham, Connecticut, which is about 17 miles northeast of New Haven. By the way, there were only about 150 landowners in Durham at the time, so that's how many voters there were. So it's not like it was a great feat to be elected to the legislature. No. Just saying. While the papers found it hard to believe someone so young and respectable could be a killer, they also acknowledged the huge amount of circumstantial evidence. One of them wrote, quote, Everything which has yet transpired in relation to this strange and unnatural case goes so strong against the unfortunate young man that it seems impossible a loop can be found wherein to hang a doubt that the life of Miss Jewett was taken by any other hand than his. The police didn't care about Richard Robinson's background. They cared less about Helen Jewett's. As far as they were concerned, she was dead, and Richard obviously did it. They had him in custody, and he would go to trial. Back then, the police and the trial focused narrowly on the crime at hand and the evidence related to that crime. 
Anything else was irrelevant. The newspapers and their readers were much more intrigued about Helen Jewett, who she was, where she was from, if she was really so talented and accomplished, how she ended up working as a girl of the town, as sex workers were called back then. While newspapers back then usually just reported happenings and what police and other sources told them, they didn't do much investigating. But in this case, they knew that the public was interested in her story and they all wanted to be the one to tell it. There were a lot of different stories about Helen, and each penny paper claimed they had the real story. All of them cited reliable sources for their stories. The son said that Helen Jewett was actually named Ellen Spaulding. She was from Maine, and her father was Major General Spaulding. Ellen slash Helen went to boarding school where she studied music and the French and Italian languages, which she spoke fluently. While she was at school, she was seduced by a bank cashier, and once her reputation was ruined this way, she, quote, abandoned herself to her late degraded course in life in consequence of this heartless perfidy. The transcript had Helen's backstory as told by Helen herself. On April 12, 1836, they reprinted a story from June 1834 that featured Helen when she had appeared in New York police court to press charges against a guy who kicked her. Helen had dropped a $10 bill on the stairs at the Park Theater. I didn't really get into this in my story, but sex workers used to hang out at the theater all the time. They would go to plays and stuff a lot, and that's where they met people. And mm. a lot of single women did not go to the theater, but the sex workers w would go by themselves. They didn't. So she dropped a $10 bill on the stairs at the Park Theater. When she bent to pick it up, a young man kicked her in the butt and ran off laughing. The kicker was the son of a Pearl Street merchant, and Helen recognized him, so she went to the police and pressed charges. A reporter for the transcript, William Attree, was interested in Helen's story. I'm assuming he saw her in court while covering proceedings and wanted to meet her. His purpose in writing about her was, quote, to show the misery resulting from the villainous artifices whose sole aim in life seems to be the seduction of a young and innocent girl. Hmm. According to Helen, as told to William Attree, she was born in Massachusetts and orphaned as a child. She was sent by her guardian to a boarding school near Boston where she met the son of a, quote, respectable merchant who engaged her affections and took her to Boston to live in sin. Her guardian came and got her and pressed charges against the seducer who fled Boston. Helen ended up feeling so ashamed of her ruined reputation that she moved to New York began her life as a sex worker. William Attry seemed quite moved by Helen's story. He wrote, Could her betrayer now see the once fascinating and innocent inmate of the boarding school from which he seduced her, reduced to the condition we have described? He would, if human, need no further punishment than the remorse which would then gnaw at his inmost soul. William mm. Attry also became one of Helen's most ardent admirers and clients. Helen also appeared in court two other times. She filed a complaint against a British naval officer, a client, who ripped up some of her dresses. She was also arrested when she was at Mary Berry's house on Duane Street when police swept the premises. The transcript reported about the second incident, quote, her quiet and genteel deportment procured her dismissal. The Herald had a different biography for Helen, also printed on April 12th. Helen's real name was Dorcas Dorrance. And Dorcas is a name that 
isn't used that much, but it seems like an oldie time. Yes. She was an orphan from Augusta, Maine. Judge Western of Augusta took Dorcas into his home to be a playmate for his daughters, and she was raised as one of the family. He sent her to the prestigious Coney Female Academy. Mm. In 1829, when she was 16, she lost her, quote, honor and ornament to a cashier from Augusta, but uh, from a, what, from the Seven <laughs> Eleven? To a cashier. And back then, cashier women didn't do these jobs. No, so I, I guess know. they were more important. They to were a bankers. cashier from yeah. an Augusta bank. His name was H blank 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 S P blank 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 Y. You know how they used to do that? That's a weird name. <laughs> no, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. The paper most likely put the name in like that to protect itself from a law score, but also to imply that they actually did have the name of a specific person instead of saying, you know, right. an unknown name. Dorcas had a fight with the judge and moved to Portland, Maine, where she took the name Maria Benson and began sex work. She then moved to Boston, changed her name to Helen Marr, and finally to New York when she settled on the name Helen Jewett. The Herald did not name any sources for its story. The transcript had culled their own records, and the son probably spoke to somebody at the police office since that's where they seemed to have gotten all the information and the case that they reported. James Gordon Bennett, the editor of the Herald, had visited the crime scene several times and had snooped into Helen's stuff. He was unusual for the time in that he was investigating rather than just taking what was told to him and reporting it, which is what a lot of the papers used to, and they do now too. It seems that he sought out people who knew her to find out information, and as we will see, his account of her life is the most accurate, although it's not totally accurate. All three stories were reprinted widely up and down the eastern states. They were also printed as far west as Columbus, Ohio, and as south as Natchez, Mississippi. On April 16th, the Boston Post said, and this is kind of long, but it it has a good, like, the New York papers are full of fictions about this girl. One describes her as surpassingly beautiful, another as remarkably refined, fascinating, and accomplished. The star makes her the daughter of a Major General Spaulding in Maine, while, by the way, there is no such man in that state, and says that her heartless seducer was a cashier of a bank who perpetrated his high offense while the unsuspecting Miss Spaulding was at boarding school, etc. Now the true story of this unfortunate wretch is simply this. She was the child of poor and destitute parents who resided in or near Augusta, Maine by the name of Dowen. Her name was Dorcas. At the age of four or five years, she was taken as a servant to the family of Judge Weston of Augusta, where she remained until she was 18 years old. While in this family, she was treated with great kindness, received a common school education, and every effort was made to instill into her mind those high moral principles which could alone secure her happiness and respectability. At an early period, she betrayed rather uncommon mental capacity, but an obtuseness of moral perception which excited the apprehensions of those in whose charge she was. Such, however, was the strict discipline she was subjected to when with the judge's family that her conduct, as far as their knowledge extended, was unexceptionable although she often declared that nothing would restrain her from following an abandoned mode of life the moment she could be 18, for then she would be her own mistress and freed from restraint, and she fulfilled her determination. Upon reaching that age, she left the family that had so long protected her and was soon degraded, not by a cashier, as the star says, but by a young man of her acquaintance and own 
own standing. About three months after this, she went to Portland and entered a house of ill fame under the name of Maria Stanley. Mm -hmm. After remaining there a short time, she proceeded to Boston and found similar lodgings there, which she occupied five or six months calling herself Helen Marr. From this city, she proceeded to New York, where she called herself Ellen Jewett, and there ended her miserable career after a residence of about four years in the shocking manner which has before been described. She possessed a naturally depraved and reckless disposition, was a great thief from her youth up, as we are informed by one who knew her in Augusta, and who has furnished us with the above particulars relative to her. If she acquired the rare accomplishments attributed to her, it must have been while she was in New York, which from her mode of life is not very probable. Her personal beauty, we are informed, was not at all extraordinary. Her figure was short and full, and her face rather prepossessing. She is described as having been shrewd and very artful, and as having contributed as largely to the ruin of young men as any female of her character in the same space of time. Now, I have some feelings about this story, and I'll talk about them yes. later. But William Gordon Bennett read this account and was intrigued. His newspaper, The Herald, had reprinted the whole story, and since it was pretty close to his account, it vindicated him in his eyes. William Bennett sent a letter to Judge Western, or Weston, it was Weston, by the way, spoiler alert. Yeah, the one get... the street is named after. Yes, exactly. His house was on Summer Street, which is right next to the Lithgow Library. Right. To get the judge's account of Helen Jewett. And he was waiting for an answer before he printed anything more about her. Judge Nathan Weston was Chief Justice of the Maine Supreme Court. He may have been one of the first. He was the youngest uh, at the time, but Maine had just become a state, you know, 16 years before. He was on business in Portland that April, accompanied by his wife, Paulina Coney Weston. The Eastern Argus was the daily paper in Portland at that time. On the Thursday after the murder, April 14th, the Argus reprinted a story from the New York Commercial Advertiser with the headline, Horrid Murder and Arson. They named the victim as Helen Jewett from Hollowell, Maine. Hollowell is next to Augusta. In fact, the courthouse in Augusta is just about two miles from downtown Hollowell. The Kennebec County Sheriff at the time was Jesse Jewett, who the judge knew well, and the judge may have wondered if there was a family connection had he read the story. But nothing else would have stood out to him, and he wouldn't have recognized his former servant as the victim. Friday, April 15th, the Eastern Argus reprinted excerpts from James Gordon Bennett's article describing Helen's corpse... The, you know, where he said she was uh, like yeah. a statue. And also Bennett's article about Helen's childhood. The Argus had removed the line about Judge Western being huh. Helen's guardian. The editor, Ira Berry, was from Augusta and knew the judge. And he was most likely protecting the judge's reputation. Soon the Boston oh, Post ar article was circulating. And a letter came to the judge from New York, forwarded from Augusta. The letter was written by William Wilder, a lawyer and friend of James Gordon Bennett's. The judge received the letter less than a week after he read the story in the Eastern Argus. On April 20th, Judge Weston wrote a reply to William Wilder and sent a copy to the editor of the Eastern Argus. The Argus printed the full transcript of the letter on April 22nd. They had gotten the scoop on the Herald by almost a week. This is the letter. Sir, you know how people always, when you read old-timey things, they're always, like, abbreviating stuff? Some of it I don't like. The, he says, yeah. Sir, yours of the 14th, I-N-S-T, inst, inst, I don't know inst uh. but anyway after having gone to my residence in augusta has been forwarded to me at this city where i'm holding court i have noticed the account of the murder recently perpetrated in new york in which the victim was a female known by the name of ellen jewett from some intimations in the papers relative to her history i'm induced to believe that her true name might have been 
Dorcas Doyen, and that she was the daughter of a mechanic who, from intemperate habits, has been for many years very poor. After the death of her mother, who I believe was a good woman, she was, at the request of her father, received into my family as a servant girl in the spring of 1826, she having been 13 years of age the preceding fall. In that capacity, she continued with us until she was 18 years old. She was, I believe, very faithful in the performance of what was required of her. She was sent at times to common schools where she made great proficiency. She was remarkable for quickness of apprehension, which was more particularly noticed in the Sunday schools where she was a constant attendant and had cultivated a taste for reading. No improper conduct of hers had ever been noticed by any member of my family. Some little time before she left us, rumors of to her disadvantage had reached the ears of Mrs. Weston, which she was led from the protestation of the girl to believe untrue. At length, reports of her prejudice became so general that we could not believe them unfounded, and they had been but too well confirmed by her subsequent character. By whom seduced, I do not know. She was visited by no young man at our house, to the knowledge of either Mrs. Weston or myself. She left us in the fall of 1830, passing where she went as we were given to understand by the name of maria stanley she has been recognized on the streets of new york by persons who had known her in augusta and i have reason to believe that she has misrepresented the condition in which she resided in my family the profligate life to which she abandoned herself has been followed by a very tragic end both are to be deeply deplored, and I sincerely hope that the catastrophe, cruel as it was, may not, may not be without its moral uses. I am, sir, your observant servant, Nathan Western. Newspapers around the country reprinted his letter as the final and true story of Helen's life. The other stories of Helen's life that had been printed had mostly come from Helen herself as well. Acquaintances and friends of hers had no doubt told the papers Helen's life story as told to them by her. She told people whatever story suited her purpose at the time. Helen was born in 1813 in Temple, Maine, which is near Farmington, right? Yeah, it's in Franklin County. Her family moved around from Temple to Vassalboro to Hollowell, and her mother died when she was 10, and her father quickly remarried a woman who was 23 years old and started a family with his new wife. Three years later was when Helen went to live with the Weston family in Augusta. It's not known how she met them or if she worked for anyone else prior to the Westons. Patricia Klein Cohen thinks that Helen may have worked for another prominent Augusta family, the Dillinghams, and from there she went to the Westons. While she did not attend the Coney Female Academy, it really isn't beyond the realm of possibilities that she could have. Judge Weston's father-in-law, Daniel Coney, established the school, and one of its missions was to provide orphaned and in indigent girls an education. Judge Weston served on its board of directors, so it is she probably didn't attend, but it's not like it was out of the realm of possibility right, she could have right. attended. In any case, Helen was smart enough and had learned enough to convince people that she was a child of privilege who could have attended such a school. James Gordon Bennett wrote a lengthy account of Helen's young life. In it, he says she went to visit relatives in Norwich which has been in some of our, our other... Which is between Waterville and Skowhegan. Yes. <laughs> like that means anything to people. I know. And met a bank cashier from Augusta, the mysterious H blank SP blank Y. There wasn't a family from that town with a name starting with SP and ending with Y, but there was a large family named Spalding, and they had a son, Harlow Spalding, who ran mm. a bookstore in downtown Augusta. The Weston's house off Winthrop Street on Summer Street is a walk of less than 10 minutes from Water Street. And Water Street is downtown where the bookstore yes. would have been. Just yes. to, yeah. And everything was, like the newspapers and yeah. stuff. Not that it really matters, 
but he could have been her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Then again, the judge had several sons, and we'll talk about that later, one her age and one a year younger, and I think the other one was two years younger. The one Helen's age went to Bowdoin College, then Harvard. Nathan, the Harvard student, roomed with his cousin. In her book, The Murder of Helen Jewett, was the life and death of a prostitute in 19th century New York, which is kind of a clumsy it's a long title. title. She speculates that the one who, of the two young men, men, either Nathan or his cousin Joseph Williams, was the one who went to the Post and gave them the information about Helen after reading about her in the papers. Cohen thinks it was the cousin because how it said she was five and it got her last name wrong she was not that smart and she wasn't that pretty and blah 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 and it also leads me to believe that she could have been fooling around with one of the sons and that's why she left another boston paper the advocate reported that helen had been seduced by the son of a judge but printed a correction the next day claiming all the judge's sons were in college when helen was living in the house which is not true mm-hmm there was a lot of effort back then to name and shame the man who led Helen down the path of destruction. Of course, we now know that that's not a simple matter. Some newspapers portrayed her as an innocent girl who turned to sex work because she had already been ruined. Others framed her as an aggressive temptress. But the hmm. truth is more com- was more complex. In the 1830s, New York and New Orleans were the two cities that were known for sex commerce. Other large cities at the time kept it under control. New York didn't really care. Uh, It wasn't against the law, and a lot of prominent men visited brothels, and it seemed like a lot of men in general did, no matter what their status was. Mm -hmm. But not just to have sex, but it seemed like they hung out and had drinks and talked to the women and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like, you can't do that with your wife, I guess. If a sex worker got arrested, it was usually on the basis of a citizen complaint for disorderly conduct, or sometimes a woman walking around alone would be arrested for vagrancy. With the completion of the Erie Canal, New York was was booming in a lot of ways, and people were pouring into the city. So a lot of single men were coming to the city to work as clerks, and they lived in boarding houses, and a lot of times men had been uh, worked as apprentices and stuff, and stay in their hometowns, but a lot of people were moving to New York, obviously. Right. Men like Richard Robinson. Helen met Richard according to the letters sent to each other in mid-June of 1835. Helen was living at Mrs. Barry's house at the time on Duane Street, which was around the corner from where she died. The two young people started an intense relationship. The sex worker-client relationships at this time seemed much different than today. But part of it is probably the type of sex worker Helen was. She chose her clients and was selective, and she was paid well. One letter from a prospective client said, quote, I am highly gratified at, at the promptitude with which you have responded to my desire to form your acquaintance, the more so because if I am to believe you, as yet I have no reason to doubt your sincerity, it is a favor which has not been granted to all who have sought it. She mm. is picky. Although these were supposed to be professional transactions, there was a lot of romantic play acting and maybe even some true romance. Helen was quite a letter writer and often exchanged letters with her clients. The letters often read like love letters. This is what she said to Richard Robinson early in their acquaintance. You will not the more readily believe I love you madly, fondly love, because in all my letters I so frequently repeat the assertion. This was Helen's way with all her clients. She would make them feel like they were special, even though they all knew they were not the only man in her life. Still, many of them responded well to this tactic, sending her love letters and gifts. 
Charles Chandler wrote a letter quoting verses from the Lala Rook, a long Persian poem that he and Helen read together on one of his visits to see her. Maybe she got paid by the minute and she just had yeah. to keep him. Another jo- George Marston, alias Bill Easy, the one whose name was on the handkerchief under her pillow, wrote, I read the beautiful letter you sent me from Philadelphia on Sunday and read it over and over again with great pleasure. You must not expect my letters to equal yours in any respect whatever, for I am wholly incompetent to answer letters so far superior to any I can write. You seem to think I shall soon find others whom I shall like as I do you, but that is impossible, for I well know there is no other like you. While the United States Postal Service was pretty well established by the 1830s and letters were delivered as quickly as they are today in most places in the country, if not quicker, probably quicker now, it was expensive and was not delivered. they weren't delivered to one's home. The recipient had to go to the post office to pick up their mail. Until the winter of 1835, the closest New York post office was on Wall Street, about a mile from Helen's residence. She often walked there among the, mo- the mostly male crowd of stockbrokers and merchants. Women didn't often go to the post office, although by the 1830s, a lot of post offices in larger cities had a ladies' window where women could pick up their mail so they didn't have to mix with all the men. That winter, December 16th and 17th, 1835, there was a fire in the First War that burned out almost 600 buildings, including the post office. The newer one opened closer to Helen's living quarters. A lot of times, the letters were not mailed, technically. People would just drop they would just leave them, like, at the, I guess you could leave stuff at the counter and somebody else could pick it up, like, instead of uh-huh. actually mailing it. There was a constant worry that someone would intercept the letter, especially from some of her clients. They were worried someone would find out they were writing to her. Their... Mm-hmm. The other way she would send notes was to hire a porter for, or a courier from the street. One porter realized who she was when he saw her dead body as he filed through the house with the rest of the gawkers and recognized her as a woman who hired him to deliver notes and other packages. One weird thing Helen would do was to let other men read the letters she sent. For instance, when one letter ended up missing, she wrote to Robinson, On Wednesday last, I wrote you a letter and took the liberty of enclosing one to Mr. G, which I had written to him, that you might have the pleasure of reading it first, after which you were to seal it and put it in the post office for me. George Marston wrote to Helen, The letter to Richard I put in the office myself as soon as I could. It seems she did this to make one guy feel favored over the other. The men often knew each other, and they knew they were clients of hers. They didn't seem jealous, uh, more amused by what she said to others. A lot of her clients introduced her to their friends or other men they admired, hoping she would take that guy on as a client also. George Marston wrote, How do you like my tall friend, Mr. Cook? I hope you feel a better disposition towards him than to Harry. He is a very fine man. In fact, I never knew a person in my life whom I like better than Mr. Cook. If you knew him as well as I do, you would not only love, but you would also respect him. Helen would also sew sew things for her clients. She made George a pincushion, and she embroidered the handkerchief with his name on it that was found under her pillow at her death. Marston later testified the sewing wasn't just for him. Quote, As far as I know, Ellen Jewett was very fond of him being employed at her needle. She was fond of obliging persons. She made some shirts for me. Independent of sewing things for me, I believe she did similar favors for other persons. I have seen other clothes there. I have left things with her to be mended and fixed by her. It's clear from her letters from her clients that the relationship was more than just sex. And from what I've seen, this doesn't seem unusual in general for the time. 
The men and women involved in this transactional sex seemed to get jealous of each other, and a lot of them acted as they were in relationships. Even so, Helen's relationship with Richard seemed more than just a servicer and customer. The only hint that one can get of their relationship is to read the letters they sent each other. No letters from Helen to anyone else other than Richard are extant, except for a couple to a doctor that she liked who doesn't seem to have been a client, just someone who treated the women in, of the house but she seemed to have a thing for him. In her first letters to Richard Robinson, Helen flattered him and professed her love. In the trunk of letters in Helen's room, there were 15 from Helen to, to Richard and 43 from Richard to Helen. And of course, that makes sense because, she, you know, he would have the letters that she wrote to him. In one of her early letters, she said things like, there's so much sweetness in that voice, so much intelligence in that eye, and so much luxuriance in that form. I cannot fail to love you. The pleasure I feel in your presence and your smile speak of hours and nights of joy. I long to see you, to hear your conversation animate your features, but I must defer that pleasure till your next visit. And he wrote things like, Dearest Nelly, I have but one sheet of ragged paper to figure on before me. Here I sit now, almost noon, just out of bed, fresh from heavenly dreams of you. Nell, how pleasant it is to dream. Be where you will, and as hungry as you will. How supremely happy one is in a little world of our own creation. A later letter Richard wrote implied some kind of fight or issue. True it is that I have treated you almost shamefully without the slightest cause whatever, and I feel it will take a long time to regain that place in your affections, which I last night so madly, foolishly threw away. I know I was acting wrong and trifling with feelings such as yours, but yet I could not help it. When you told me you were unhappy and wished me not to act so foolishly, I felt for you and pitied you, yet I could not have spoken a pleasant word if I would. But it is done, and the only way I can tone to you is in future be more of a gentleman and more myself. Apparently in August or September, Richard was with another woman, which upset Helen even though she was still seeing her clients. Now, it turned out he was with many other women all during his time with Helen, but she only found out about one, maybe two. He was quite a Mm -hmm. quite busy she wrote as i continue writing i find myself shedding tears which has produced a convulsion of feeling too painful to be born yet women seem to some degree born for weeping but when i think of you as the only being on earth i really love i feel more inclined to weep i have never since i have known you had but one hope one wish which is long after you had ceased to see me you would think of me not as utterly beneath the herd with whom i have been obliged to associate if you could read my heart while I write to you, you would pity me. And yet, strange as that may appear to you, I would not have you pity. It seems so very like contempt. You are not aware what an effort has cost me to tame my language and curb my thoughts and triumph over the madness which is lurking at my heart. And then, indeed, you would not despise, though you might dislike. This letter and others written around this time showed that Helen had more than a fondness for Richard. She was in love with him and in his thrall, it seemed. Helen's letters with other clients show that she usually had the upper hand in her business relationships. In November, Richard wrote, quote, You was offended Wednesday evening at my language. I do not wonder that you were. It was harsh, very harsh, but I could not help it. No one can love you more than I do, dear Nellie. Yet how strange, whenever I meet you, I cannot treat you even with respect. <laughs> you must think it very strange that I profess love to you so much and yet always treat you so harshly. I have told you over and over again that loving you as I do and not being able to see you makes me almost crazy and I have not control over my feelings. Doesn't that sound kind of like some kind of, it sounds very red flaggy. Yes, I was going to say it, it sounds very manipulative, and I'm sure mm. he's a psychopath. 
In a letter written shortly after this one, he called her by the name of Rhea Benson, which he apparently thought was her real name. He blamed Helen for expecting too much of him. I don't know on what footing I stand with you. Any deviation from the line of conduct which you think I ought to pursue, and I am blown. All your professions, oaths, and assurances set aside to accommodate your new feelings towards me. Even this letter will be used as a witness against me to avenge a fancied insult in my hands. Poor Frank has indeed a thousand unsurmountable difficulties to encounter bandied about like a dog who has as he becomes useless is cast aside no longer worthy of a single thought except to be cursed he said their feelings for each other had changed and they needed to break up he wrote my conduct the last time i was at your house was far from being gentlemanly or respectful i behave myself as i should never do again i was very sorry for it and now i can beg your pardon i've done to you as i've never done to anybody else he also asked if they could return each other's letters to each other and miniatures that they had exchanged which were little miniature paintings of themselves which people mm. carried as keepsakes he ended the letter by saying nelly i have only to say do not betray me but forget me i am no longer worthy of you however they got back together and broke a couple more times that winter usually because of him cheating at one point she wrote i love you frank uh you know how i love you but do you know how much i can hate you take care i will show you in january helen moved out of mary berry's house richard wrote hearing that you left mrs b's i'm astonished that you don't inform me is it true that you made up your mind to forget me to denounce me to those you most sacredly promise not to am i not then debased enough when i deserve to be forgotten by you but that you must go further and betray me nelly nelly pause ere you go further think of how we were once situated and if you can convince yourself you are acting a noble part and cutting my throat go on is all i have to say helen answered dearest frank i've not forgotten you believe me i'm very desirous of seeing and cannot tell what you mean by sending me an unsealed note and your expressions relative to blowing you which didn't mean the same thing <laughs> which you have my word which i think she means telling on you right which you have my word that i will never under any circumstances do whatever you may learn from others you will find that invaluable they set up a meeting in person on a street corner richard was obviously concerned that helen was going to tell someone something about him at the end of one of his first letters he says did cashier come to see you after i left cashier is mentioned in several letters it seems like he is someone richard is spying on or getting Helen to extract information from him, but it is never clear. And one Helen says, I'm aware of how disagreeable it would be for you to encounter Cashier, who sent me word he's coming to my house early this evening. And another, she wrote, This evening the cashier intends calling upon me. I tell you this because I'm aware of how much reluctant you would meet him at my house. They also refer to Cashier as Mr. G. In August, Richard asked Helen to take on this Mr. G as a client and feeds her some names to drop to him. It seems like Richard's involving Helen in some kind of setup. He wrote, Dear Nelly, I intended coming to your house last night, but something transpired which compelled me to stay away. I overheard cashier MG say they would watch the house until they found out who it was. I am the one they want to find out and was afraid last night to call on you. If you have not hinted to Sierra's name to them, substitute Reed Gordon's. And another, he warns, touch lightly or a reaction may blow you to heaven high though the early months of 1836 helen wrote 10 notes to richard robinson 
telling him to meet her. She had something important to tell him. He apparently ignored those notes because hers became more desperate until one she wrote, It is in your power to decide whether or not I longer remain thus unhappy. I, I never mm. expected that you would desert me quite in this manner, and if that is the case that you have done so, I should certainly learn it from no one but yourself. I told you in my last letter that I had a communication to make that affected you, and you have not paid the slightest attention to it. Another note. If, my dearest Frank, you have ever tolerated for one day the painful suspense I yesterday endured, then you will pardon me for writing you a harsh, cold letter. I feel amazingly like blowing you up, if I dared, not with powder. She wrote again, Slight me no more, trample on me no further, even the worm will turn under the heel. You have known how I have loved. Do not, oh, do not provoke the experiment of seeing how I can hate. He finally replied, I have read your note with pain. I ought to say displeasure, nay, anger. Women are never so foolish as when they threaten. You are never so foolish as when you threaten me. Keep quiet until I come on Saturday night, and then we shall see if we cannot be better friends hereafter. Do not tell any person I shall come. On March 18th, Helen moved again, this time to Rosina Townsend's house. She was only there three weeks before being killed. While it isn't certain because the notes are not dated... Patricia Klein-Cohen, the author of the book I used in researching, believes that those last notes were exchanged the week before Helen's demise. And I agree. Saturday, April 9th, Helen and her housemate, Elizabeth Salters, walked together down Broadway. Helen was carrying a book and a letter, which she gave to a porter to deliver to someone on Pearl Street, probably George Marston, a.k.a. Bill Easy, who worked in that area. Near the new department store, A.T. Stortz on Broadway, Helen met up with Edward Strong, who worked as a clerk at the store. Edward came back to the Thomas Street house with the two women and went with Helen up to her room. It was late afternoon, early evening by now. Helen's servant, Sarah Dunscombe, was in Helen's room getting it ready for the night ahead. Sarah worked each morning for an hour or two and in the evening as well. She would supply Helen's room with firewood and water, change the bed linens, and help Helen get dressed for an evening for the evening and fix her hair and stuff like that. Sarah had started a fire in the grate and was dusting while Edward Strong sat on the bed and Helen sat in his lap. Sarah wasn't paying much attention to what they said. Sarah told the grand jury that the previous morning, while dusting Helen's room, she had noticed a miniature in a leather case. Helen would sometimes wear it around her neck. Helen told Sarah it was a portrait of Richard, A.K. Frank Rivers. Sarah put it in the dresser drawer. Edward Strong apparently left before 8 o'clock because at that time Helen had tea with some of her housemates and told them that Frank Rivers was coming. So much for her not telling anybody. She had told Bill Easy not to come for his usual Saturday night date. She was worried that he still might show up, so she asked Rosina Thompson if he did not to let him in. At 9 or a bit later, Rosina answered a knock on the front door. She made the visitor repeat his request to see Helen to make sure it wasn't Bill Easy. When she opened the door and the lamplight hit the man's face, he drew the cloak over it so she couldn't see, but she thought it looked like Frank. Emma French was in the doorway of her first floor room and recognized the man as Frank. Rosina went to the parlor to tell Helen he was there. As Frank went up the steps, Helen met him on the stairs, took his cloak, and greeted him as Frank. They went up to her room. James, too, Richard's roommate and buddy, showed up and talked with Elizabeth Salters, who told them that Helen was upstairs with Frank. About 11 p.m., Helen came out of her room in a nightgown. She asked for champagne, and Rosina offered to go get a bottle from the basement. She brought up the bottle and two glasses to Helen's room, and Helen invited her in for a drink, but Rosina said no thanks. She stood in the doorway and chatted 
for a few minutes with Helen and noticed Frank reclining on his left elbow on the bed, which was opposite the door, reading by the light of a candle. Rosina left to attend to her own guest, Charles Humphrey, who had just arrived. Most of the women were entertaining guests, except Elizabeth Salters, who was taking a nap to catch up on sleep before her visitor arrived at three. No one heard any noise until the knock on Rosina's door asking to be let out. Helen shared a wall with Maria Stevens, but it was a thick wall because the building had once been two homes, and that had been an exterior wall, or I guess maybe not exterior because I think they're townhouses, but like the wall that separated the two homes. Right. So it was pretty thick. So Maria didn't hear anything. And as they said at the trial, Maria was entertaining two men, so she didn't hear Mm -hmm. much. Sometime during the time Helen received the champagne and Elizabeth's visitor arrived, Helen was struck in the head three times by a hatchet. Two of the blows were light, just making small cuts, but the third was hard enough to embed skull bone fragments into Helen's brain. No Mm. defensive wounds were reported in the autopsy report, so probably there were none. Dr. Rogers, the surgeon who performed the autopsy, as I said, concluded Helen had been killed in her sleep. When they cut Helen open, they found she had lost a lot of blood and her chest cavity was full of blood. There are three possible reasons Helen had blood in her chest. Number one, she woke up. And the killer pushed her down, like with his knee or something. She might have went into convulsions and he freaked out and pinned her down and hit her. Or he just kneeled on her chest and hit her with a hatchet and caused her to bleed in her chest. The murder was premeditated. The hatchet used did not belong to the house. The killer brought it with him. Helen's killer used the candle to light the bed. He probably hoped he would burn the whole house down and everybody inside it. He probably was not worried about Rosina seeing who he was when he asked for the key. Well, she didn't see him, but if she had opened the door and given him the key like he wanted, because he was hoping that she'd be dead soon along with the rest of the house. Since it was likely Richard Robinson who did the deed, that may be the reason he left his letters there, because he figured they'd burn up. His little miniature portrait, though, the one Sarah Dunskin had admired, the police found it in Richard's room on Day Street when they searched it after the murder. He valued that item, and he must have wanted it back. Hmm. Had James Ashley, Elizabeth Salter's visitor, not shown up at 3 a.m., Richard Robinson's plan may have worked. The fire burning Helen may have taken hold. After all, fires happened all the time in the city. The hatchet used in the murder was common, but it was the same type of hatchet used at the Hoxie store to open crates. The stock boy told police it had been missing. the hatchet had been missing Monday, April 11th when he went to use it. He later identified the one found in the backyard at Thomas Street as the one from the store because it had some dark marks on the handle and the the blade head was, quote, blunted in a particular way. The cloak was one people had seen Robinson wear and had a repaired tassel on it that Elizabeth Salters recognized. She remembered Richard showing it to her after it had been repaired. The white paint on the pants Richard was wearing could have come from a back fence at Rosina's house, which had recently been whitewashed. There were no bloodstains on Richard's clothes. The police figured he was most likely naked when he murdered Helen. On Monday, Helen was buried at St. John's Graveyard about a mile away from Thomas Street. Someone paid $6 for a Christian burial and Helen Jewett was listed in the Trinity Parish Monthly Report of Internments as a widow, aged 23, from Maine. 
cause of death homicide. Why a widow? Well, there were several checkoffs. Girl, married woman, single woman, and a widow. So I guess somebody thought that was probably the closest. They didn't want to call her a girl, I guess. I don't know. But well, also, they could have called her single woman. That's true. Fun fact, in the 1890s, the parish advertised widely for anyone with loved ones buried at the burying grounds to reclaim the remains and re- to rebury them. Hardly anybody did, especially not poor Helen. Thousands of bodies and tombstones were buried in a formal French-style park was built on the site. In 1972, when excavating for a playground, a backhoe unearthed a bunch of graves, but not Helen's. Her grave had been robbed four nights after her burial. According to the Herald, she ended up at the College of Physicians and Surgeons on Barclay Street. Her skeleton hung in a closet there. Her grave probably was robbed. Because yeah, they, they did that all the they time. They did it all the time. Yeah. And they knew that. Anyway, Richard's employer, Joseph Hoxie, hired Ogden Hoffman, a well-known trial lawyer, to defend his young charge. James Gordon Bennett, the editor of the Herald, wanted his paper to stand apart from the other penny papers and hopefully boost circulation. He took the stance that Richard Robinson was innocent because Bennett knew that a certain segment of readers would support that view. He was right about that. Young clerks and cashiers all over the city made a hero out of Richard. They formed a group called Robinsonian Junto. (laughs) They dressed like Richard in his dandy style clothes and floppy hats. They harassed the women of Thomas Street so much so that the residents moved out and closed the establishment. They would crash in the many public moral reform meetings, lectures about the evils of sex, prostitution, and they would yell stuff and heckle people. They were unapologetically bigoted regarding gender and class. They felt a young, respectable man with his future ahead of him had much more worth than a common prostitute. Why should he even be punished for killing her? The Sun published a letter from someone who signed it Veritas, a man who said he was a friend of Richard's. Veritas said that Helen was ugly and immoral. He wrote, I am sorry to see so young a person, meaning Richard, sacrificed for ridding the city of so great a disgrace to her set. The Microscope, a newspaper published in Albany, New York, wrote, If Robinson is in town and has a spare hatchet, we were direct him to a sink of pollution in our neighborhood where he might do the public some service in his line. The grand jury met on April 18th and 19th. When Rosina and the other woman from her house arrived to testify, they were heckled from the crowd around the courthouse. The day Rosina testified at the grand jury, she auctioned off the furnishings from her house. She knew her business was ruined. She hired two police to stand guard. One of them was Dennis Brink. According to the Herald, the crowd was mostly young men, and they paid up to four times the worth of the furniture. Rosina's house, now empty, drew crowds. People claimed to see Helen's bloody ghost floating by the windows, a hatchet floating around her head. The only paper who reported those ghostly sightings was the Herald. Dressing like Richard Robinson, as I said before, was also a way to support him. One of the newspapers wrote that the men who belonged to the Robinsonian Junto wore, quote, a plum-colored coat with a black velvet collar, black scarf, and floppy cap. And this is the way Richard Robinson dressed and wore, he wore like that floppy cap all through his trial. There were lithographs each of Richard Robinson and Helen Jewett for sale on the street. Also, Prince of Helen Jewett dead in her bed, of Richard running away from her bed holding a hatchet, lithographs based on their miniatures. People were obsessed. Richard's trial for murder started early in June on a rainy Thursday morning. A reported 6,000 people crowded around the courthouse. 
waiting to get in. The judge was Ogden Edwards, who was distantly related to the defense attorney, Ogden Hoffman. The court was in session for 11 or 12 hours each day, with only one daily recess of a half an hour at 3 p.m. each day. The final day of trial lasted 14 hours, with an hour and a half break to allow the lawyers to prepare their final statements. Oh, God. Author Patricia Klein-Cohen notes that the record does not explain what was done for bathroom breaks or meals. There were not official court transcripts back then. The 20 reporters from various newspapers in the New York and Philadelphia area tried to record as much of the testimony verbatim as they could. There were court scribes who took notes on the proceedings, as long as the jury was there to witness the trial and make a decision that was good enough. However, the public wanted to know exactly what was going on. A lot of publishers hired people to transcribe the testimony and printed the trial as if it were a script, so the public could read it and experience the trial as if they were there too. The crowds in the courtroom every day swelled to almost a thousand spectators, mostly men. Richard Robinson showed little emotion throughout the trial, except for fidgeting with the cap he always wore. Joseph Hoxie, his boss, sat next to him, and his father, who I still don't know the name of, and his <laughs> uncle. His uncle, Alison Parmalee, sat behind him. I wonder why she didn't print his I don't know. She printed every other person's name. Vordier, selecting the jury, or Vordier, however you want to say it, took five hours, and protocol dictated Richard's stand for the whole thing. Although 59 men had received summons, and of course, as we know, only men were on juries back then, only 21 showed up. I guess if you could pay a $25 fine, you could get out of it. Seven of those men made it to the jury. So the judge used talesmen, which was a practice under British and American law, in which men in the courtroom were pressed into serving on the jury. Judge Edwards didn't think it was a good idea to choose from the spectators in the courtroom that day, so he sent court officers to grab talesmen from out in the streets and shops. It took several more hours to get 12 jurors. The first witness was Rosina Townsend, who testified for five hours. The men in the courtroom, many of whom were Robinsonian Juto, made so much noise the judge threatened them with jail for contempt. All the people mentioned before told their stories. Dr. Rogers, the watchman, Captain George Noble, Constable Dennis Brink, Elizabeth Salter, Sarah Dunscombe, etc., Many of those close to Richard, such as Joseph Hoxie and James Two, were not helpful in answering questions and weren't able to identify handwriting or answer questions about Richard's comings and goings. They had trouble recalling. The prosecutor, Thomas Phoenix, brought forth a surprise witness, Frederick Gorgans, who worked as a clerk in an apothecary. He remembered Richard coming into the store in early April wanting to buy arsenic to use as rat poison. Gorgon would not sell him any. He told the court, We are always in the habit of refusing to sell arsenic to strangers. Which I think is probably a good policy. Yes. The defense attorney got Frederick flustered, and he ended up admitting maybe he was mistaken about the identity of the arsenic guy. The judge ended up striking the testimony anyways with a hatchet, and whether or not Richard had tried to buy poison didn't really matter. There was a defense witness, too, a late surprise witness, a grocer named Robert Furlong, who claimed Richard had entered his store on the evening of the murder at about 10 p.m. buying cigars and shooting the ship for at least half an hour. So he couldn't have been with Helen when Rosina and Emma placed him at the house at 9 p.m. When Robert Furlong testified, all the young men, the Robinsonian Junto, in the audience cheered. Trials were different back then. In Richard Robinson's trial, there were 10 and a half hours of closing statements. So the whole trial was about 56 and a half hours over five days. One-fifth of the trial was closing argument. 
Newspapers published transcripts as best they could have been recorded and the closing statements, and they were made into a 24-page pamphlet titled Murder Most Foul. Robert H. Morris, who was assisting D.A. Phoenix, gave the closing statement since Thomas Phoenix was absent from court. Uh, Morris gave a rambling argument that basically said all the circumstantial evidence could not be mere coincidence. The next day was the defense's closing argument. Ogden Hoffman, the defense attorney, had throughout the trial referred to his client as the poor boy or the boy. In his closing argument, he told the jury that the women who worked at Rosina's house had conspired to frame Richard Robinson, most especially Rosina. It is her who has sworn against him. It is she who would erect a gallows for that man. It is she who would send him to an early grave. There is a foul conspiracy in this matter. Later in his closing arguments, Ogden Hoffman said, I am not going to say that a prostitute's oath is not legal in a court of justice, but I am going to say that eminent judges have held it very doubtful as to the credit that should be allowed to it. Can a juror go with his oath based on the polluted declarations of a common prostitute? Mm. Does she care for human life? She who has seen victims every day in her house, who has seen with pleasure the plague spot on his cheek and knew that corruption was doing its work. What was it to Rosina Townsend that a father's hopes are laid buried there? What was it to Rosina Townsend that a mother's hopes are destroyed? He wondered aloud why none of the men visiting the house that night had testified. Um, because they wouldn't. That's why. <laughs> they didn't even try to get him because they were all men. You know, They didn't right. want to ruin their reputation. He claimed Rosina had gotten Sarah Dunscombe, the servant, to lie to the court to frame Richard. About Elizabeth Salters, who had once been involved with Richard, Hoffman said, A woman's pride once wounded, a woman never forgets. A prostitute, once her pride is injured, will pursue her victim to the grave. Salters has sworn she has no feelings of unkindness being deserted. But do you believe her? It is contrary to a woman's character to bear such a thing without feelings of revenge. Hoffman said Richard's lack of emotion proved he was innocent. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, that what he didn't want Helen to betray was the fact that he visited sex workers. Hoffman pointed out that the prosecution hadn't given any other explanation for what she would betray him, which is true. They didn't. They did a really shitty job. So, you know. Mm -hmm. Thomas Phoenix was in the court the next day to rebut the defense's closing argument. He said there was something wrong with Richard not to be upset about Helen's death. Quote, she whom he had been so long in intimacy with, with whom he had been but a few hours before. Why, gentlemen, even a dog would have howled forth his lamentation. His appearance in this case seemed unnatural. Judge Edwards <laughs> reminded the jury that they had to agree beyond all reasonable doubt that Richard had murdered Hel Helen. Then he said that sex workers are not to be entitled to credit unless their testimony is corroborated by others drawn from better sources. Testimony derived wholly from persons of this description without any other testimony is not to be received. Then the judge started speculating about the ways the circumstantial evidence could be wrong. That maybe Richard left the cloak on an earlier visit. Maybe Sarah was wrong about the day she saw the miniature. Maybe Richard or somebody else borrowed the hatchet from the store and wasn't the same one. Hmm. Basically planning out in the jury's mind. Yeah, what the fuck? The jury went out at about 12.30 a.m. requesting the court remain in session while they were out which the judge agreed to. Depending on the source, they were out for 8 to 15 minutes. They came back with a verdict of not guilty. Richard burst into tears and left the room in the arms of Joseph Hoxie. There was a rumor that Joseph Hoxie had paid off a juror, but I don't think that would have been necessary. Maybe the judge was paid off, but I don't think he needed to. He was on the defense side from the beginning. Judge Edwards ruled for the defense on almost every objection throughout the trial. 
There was a joke around New York after the trial. Richard Robertson won because he had six lawyers working for him. How do you figure? Well, there was Price, Maxwell, and Hoffman, the defense, Judge Edwards, Phoenix, and Morris. Ha ha ha. Robert Furlong, the grocer's testimony, was what reportedly swayed the jury more than anything else. In the end, male privilege won. The testimony by the male friends of Richards and the grocer, their testimonies were vague and unsupported by any kind of evidence, weighed more heavily with the jury than the large amount of circumstantial evidence and the specific and believable testimony of the women in Rosa's house. Robert Phoenix was criticized for not forcing the male visitors that night to testify, although he knew who they were, most of them. But he said they were not crucial witnesses and he didn't want to ruin their reputation. The men's names were not printed in the papers but were listed as potential witnesses by the DA. The Albany Evening journal called it quote a mockery of justice and said that richard was not a poor boy but a quote habitual practice profligate associate of prostitutes he tried to buy poison his wallet was found quote gorged with bills of exchange stolen from his employer the women who testified were less guilty and more entitled to sympathy and forbearance the newspapers may have condemned the acquittal, but Richard Robinson had a lot of supporters. On the eve of July 4th that year, a militia practicing in Salem, Massachusetts, reportedly used an effigy of Rosina Townsend for target practice. Sounds kind of like stuff that happens today. I was going to say, after the trial, the ledger and the Sun reported that Richard had seduced and kept a young woman who had been missing. And she wasn't missing that proof false. He did seduce her and put her up in an apartment, but her aunt came and got her. But other people, I'm assuming sex workers, reported that he threatened to kill anyone who told, quote, the reckless and profuse expenditures in which she indulged and which many of them well knew he could only sustain by peculation. Richard also made gifts of bolts of fabric to the women he visited, which he probably stole from his place of work. Mm -hmm. While Richard was in prison, he sent notes to a friend of his, William D. Gray, who was in jail for theft charges. He paid off some money to bring the notes between their cells. Richard had apparently had sex with William's wife, Mary Jane, who he referred to as Emma in the note, prior to her marriage to William. Richard offered to seduce her so William could have grounds to divorce if he ever was sick of her. He said she wouldn't be the first married woman he seduced. He also complained about a servant who knew something about his and Gray's secrets. The note said, that same servant is a damning, deceitful, lying bitch. Whether she has or will blab us, I know not. But in case she does, we'll deny it to the last and be D blank D to her. In place of reward, she'll get her belly full of something not so agreeable for her plans. One of the notes had three businessmen's names and their bank account information, presumably a means for William Gray to bilk money from the account. None of these notes came to light until after the trial. William Gray was convicted of embezzling and stealing items of clothing from another man and pawning them. He tried to say his father in Zanesville, Ohio would make good, but alas, he got five years in Sing Sing. Once the notes between Richard and William came out to the public, everyone suddenly believed Richard to be guilty. The Philadelphia Public Ledger said about the seduction plot, the one where Richard said he'd seduce William's wife, this fact is sufficient to prove him capable of murder or any other crime. The Boston Herald called Richard a monster of profligacy, a fiend in human shape. The Herald wrote that even Mr. Joseph Hoxie no longer believed in Richard's innocence. In July, an anonymous writer produced a pamphlet titled Robinson Downstream, containing conversations with the great unhung. 
<laughs> Richard sat for the interview back in Durham, Connecticut, where he had returned after the trial. The interviewer was apparently someone from Richard's past to whom Richard owed money because Richard told him that he could use the proceeds from the pamphlet against Richard's debt. Richard told the reviewer only, quote, a bungler would use a hatchet. Quote, to cut up the girl, I would soon use a jackknife. About the alibi that he was at the store smoking, he said, quote, smoking may kill other folks, but it keeps me alive. When asked if Helen loved him, Richard said, how could she help it? Half the women in New York were in love with me. Somehow I pass for a marvelous proper man. I can go back to Gotham and marry an heiress. But out upon matrimony, say I, I'm not fond of cold ham. He was asked about sex workers in New York, and he said, some of them surpass all other women I have ever known in beauty, but above all in eloquence. They can tell piteous tales of their wrongs and sufferings, tricks of the trade, though, tricks of the trade, I do assure you. He was asked why he lied to the police about the cloak being his. Quote, it was none of Brink's business to inquire into the state of my wardrobe. I told him to a lie because it was natural. Neither clerks nor merchants in New York scruple to lie. Lying is their vocation. Tis too common, tis too common to be considered even an accomplishment. Would you hang up a poor jumper for lying? If all the liars in New York were killed, there would be few people left for mourners. About the murder, Richard said, I have nothing more to say about it. My conscience does not hurt me. Don't report now that I confess myself guilty, look like a criminal, etc. I don't confess anything at all. They can't prove that I ever saw Helen. It might have been somebody else. There was a dark passage. I deny the whole affair, handkerchief, miniature, letters, cloak, and all. The interviewer, a friend of Robinson's, or a former friend, added his own opinion in the pamphlet, and he said that Richard possessed, quote, a total want of moral perception. Richard ended up in Texas, where he joined the Texas Army to fight Mexico. He only lasted in the Army six days. He ended up changing his name to Richard Parmalee, his mother's maiden name, and moved to Nacogdoches, Texas. In 1845, he married a young widow. He was 28 and she was 25. She had two small children from her first marriage. She and Richard had none of their own. He became the owner of a large farm and several families of slaves. Two of Richard's sisters and their husbands and families came to Texas to live near him. He traveled back east often, and on one of these trips, he became ill and died in 1855 at the age of 38. But I don't want the end on that piece of crap, Richard. In the 1820s, there was an author named Mrs. Anne Royale who wrote a trilogy of books called The Black Books. She would travel to different cities, stay for a while, and write gossipy books about the society people and the places she went. She also wrote her unvarnished opinions about what she thought of people and how she was treated. She would call people morons, jackasses, or contemptible puppies. Her oh, she sounds himself. like my kind of writer. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the quotes from her books are pretty funny. In 1827, she visited Augusta, Maine. And here's some of what she wrote. When I knocked on the door of Judge Western, it was opened by a little girl of about 11 years old who saluted with an inimitable sweetness and with a graceful wave of her hand invited me to take a seat on the sofa. I knew her to be a servant, which surprised me the more. Stepping back as she opened the door with an air of the most accomplished lady, I forgot to ask for the judge, but began to question the little girl respecting herself. Mrs. Royale did not have a high opinion of Augusta. The only people she liked were the Westons, but she loved Judge Western, but not enough 
to get his name correct, apparently. <laughs> in the book I read, she called her a slapdash author. Judge Western and his family alone would secure the reputation of any place which might have the honor of his residence. The judge is of low stature, but very dignified. He said he was 40 years of age. I would suppose him at once, not more than 25. He is the youngest looking man in America. In his manner, he is frank, polite, and easy as the evening gale. And at the same time, the most commanding and dignified man in the United States. And to take him on any ground, he is altogether one of our first men. He is a long way ahead of any judge I have met with north of Washington City. But Mrs. Anne Royale really took a fancy to one person. But of all the families I saw, I was most astonished at a little girl in the capacity of a servant. I generally, and doubtless others do too, for my opinion of the master and mistress of a house by the servant who opens the door. I'm sure you do, Mo. Always. If I, if I find the servant civil and polite, the master is certain to be so. But if I find the servant insolent, I never fail to find a thorough, proud vixen in the house. What an easy matter it must be, I thought, to be polite when this child has become so perfect in the art. After exchanging salutations with the family, I could not forbear a remark upon the girl, expressing my astonishment at her graceful manners when Miss W. informed me she was a poor or orphan child, whom she took and raised. This is saying enough for Mrs. Western. This deed had more goodness in it than all the Bible and tract societies ever performed in their lives. So that was little girl was Dorcas. Oh, what a surprise. <laughs> You're supposed to do it like that. What? little girl, girl. was Dorcas Doyle. <laughs> Helen. Helen was described at her death as an accomplished, smart, talented woman. Reading the few letters that are left is clear. She was smart and well-read. People lamented that the fact that she chose the life she was leading hmm. back then, and maybe even now a lot of people thought like, there had to be a reason why she chose to be a sex worker. Someone seduced her or whatever. Some people today would still try to simplify things this way. But regardless of who she slept with, what kind of life would she have led if she had decided to walk the straight and narrow? She was poor, but she was smart. I'm sure she was attractive, otherwise someone like Mrs. Royal would not have taken such a shine to her. But she was poor. She lived in Augusta, Maine, which although it was a busy city, the prospects for a poor girl who worked as a servant were kind of bleak. Can anyone blame her for taking off at age 18 and doing whatever she could do to live the life she wanted? I'm not romanticizing sex work, but nor am I judging her. She was living an independent life in New York. She spent her days reading, writing, socializing. She was the master of her own life. She had beautiful clothes jewelry she lived in lavish surroundings she was able to choose the men who she entertained and if she didn't like them she could banish them if not the ideal life a lot of women would like it better than a life of poverty children and servitude that surely would have been in maine she was exceptionally smart smart enough to realize what awaited her if she stayed where she was right and that is the end of my story thank you that was good and i totally agree women back then didn't have many choices people say the same type of thing today well why would she choose to do that she's so smart she could have well, yeah well, what would she have done right well, but today circumstances are, i'm not saying people's lives and choices aren't as complicated she had no choice especially as a servant if you grow up as a servant it's not like like, oh, now I'm going to go to college and have a career. And but also another thing that struck me, I agree the author who you got your information from did a lot of work. Oh my God. But you look at it, you know, it was almost 200 years ago and the people telling the stories are, 
you know, the men who mm-hmm. are the ones who, even though she used a lot of contemporary information like newspapers and letters and stuff, you know, you'll never know what really happened. But there's no doubt that Richard was up to no good. Who knows how much of a threat he saw her as or something, but... She knew something right. that he was up to. And she right. was going to... I don't think she was going to tell. I think I think they had one of those weird... He, he was obviously a psychopath, Yes, too, he was. He you know? was. And so, you know, it could have been as simple as she was too much of an annoyance and a bother and yeah, he needed and to I, have her gone. Obviously, she she was manipulative in her way because that was how she... Well, that's that, how that she made her living, survive. you know? But I think that he out-manipulated her. He got her to... Maybe she wasn't in love with him, but I think she thought she was. And and I think she just wanted to keep him in her life somehow. So she was threatening him, but I don't right. think she was probably cared well, what he well, was doing or what he was going to do. She probably wasn't going to tell on him. She just right. wanted... And also, as independent as she and the other women were, and as much power as they held over the men as far as being attractive and sex, their power was still much more limited than the no, men's. No, it was. And the other no. thing that I didn't get into is, and one of the reasons the doors were barred so much and she had all those pickets and stuff up... Is because there were other men, not clients, that would burst into the house and harass the woman or beat them. Gee, what a surprise. Um, and they did that even at, when he was in jail, some of his, you know, followers. Right. Because they blamed, the, of course, it's always the women's fault that they're sex workers, you know, like right. they don't have clients. The other thing I wanted to say was I thought it was interesting, too, when I read this book, how many things were parallel to some of the newer ones we got, especially yes. the last one I did, where they had the text to each other. And I was thinking that when you were reading the letters, that it was like the text. The from, more things yeah. change, the more they stay That's the same. True. You know? That's it's weird. True. Okay, so I have a recommendation. Ooh. <laughs> It was actually on the ABC show 2020 last March, and I just came across it on YouTube looking for something to watch. Either YouTube or whatever of my many streaming services. And I usually don't watch 2020 because it's one of those things I have issues, but it looked like an independently made film that they had showed as a 2020. And it was called The Chameleon... Or something, sorry if I can't get the name quite right. But it was about the Bear Brook serial killer in New Hampshire thing that there is the podcast Bear Brook on. And you did episode... Yes, one of our (laughs) episodes that I can't remember. I did on it. Bad reenactments. I'm taking away half a point. It's not loaded with them. They have brief ones, but they're unnecessary. You know, why have them when you don't need them? There's so much material that they can use that they're pointless. Okay, number two, narrative cliches. Yes. I'm taking away a point because while there is no narrator... They have zillions of talking heads. The phrases, if someone wrote a book about this, you know, blah, blah, blah. These things don't happen in New Hampshire. Uh, I wrote down, and they're said over and over. Things like, this is such a small town. And one reason I watched this is because I lived nearby there for 25 years in the newspaper I worked for covered this and so i'm just interested and in case people aren't familiar by the way it's the case where they found the um barrels in the woods in new hampshire with a woman's body and three children and it was ended up being linked to serial killer terry rasmus and this cross-country dna 
thing. So I know that's a bad synopsis of what it's about. Yeah, that was great. Racial gender obtuseness. I am not taking away a point. Lack of good visuals is the next one. I'm not taking away any points. They had a lot of visuals. I feel like they could have used them to better effect instead of having the reenactments. And the reenactments, too, you know, they weren't people acting the whole thing out, but, like, they show these little boys going in the woods or the cop going into the woods or the little girl in the trailer park running with her tricycle and stuff. There were good visuals. Why not use them to better effect? But I'm not going to take away. I know. Like, especially, like I've said before, now with drones and stuff, it's easy to get a good, like, aerial view. They did have drone shots. Yep, they had drone shots. Okay, let's see. Missing pieces. I'm taking away half a point. There were a bunch of things, but one yeah. one thing is that they had Brad Garrett as one of the many talking heads, and he's an FBI profiler. And all they had was Oh, him. sorry, I was picturing everybody loves Raymond Brad Garrett. Right, no, they didn't have him. That would have been really bad. Anyway, Brad Garrett, this FBI profiler, is one of the talking heads who, and I'll talk about it more in storytelling, Jace basically repeating the same story as everyone else. He did not say one fucking thing that profiled who would do this or why this guy would do this. His whole purpose for being there, I would think, would to give some psychological perspective. There was none. And I'm like, why the fuck is he on this? So They um, might as well have had the other Brad To tell you the Garrett. truth, I'm going to take away... They might as well. Uh, so I'm going to take away a whole point. Of, Whoa! Yeah. Inaccuracies, anachronisms. Not really. Is always whenever you watch something that has people talking about where you live or where you have lived and they generalize... You know, there were things they said about New Hampshire and that part of New Hampshire that are more of a Hollywood filmmaker's view than if you live there, but whatever. I'm not taking away any points. How about storytelling? I'm taking away two points. Oh, you know what? I haven't been keeping track, and I'm sure I have you been. have it. Oh, I you have. have. I have. For once. Yeah, okay. I have. In okay. your face, I have. I'm taking okay, away two points. I'm taking Yo. away two, even though we usually only take away wow. one. Wow. Because it was so fucking annoying, I wanted to stick white hot pokers through my eyes. One of our favorite things, the many, many talking heads all telling the same story. And what really annoyed me is they had people, oh, I who, were, hate that. people who were there. People who experienced it. Different things with this guy. And so they'd have a woman telling her story, and then all of a sudden they'd have the guys. So they had, like, Brant Garrett. They had several cops. They had the narrator, who's this guy from New Hampshire Public Radio who did the podcast. So I'm not exaggerating. Four or five people telling the same story. So then she did this. So then that happened. And the woman whose story it is, like, starts telling it. And then it, they'd have other people, and it's like fucking pinball. And it drives me crazy. And that was with the reenactments, too. It was, like, so frenetic. Have one person tell the story. Or maybe have one person tell it and have somebody like Brad Garrett add some kind of perspective. But that whole thing where, like, I'll give a very general example, not from this, but just in life. Let's say I'm telling a story. I got up this morning. I walked over to the bakery and got a cinnamon roll and a coffee. And on my way home, a fox ran in front Mm -hmm. of me and I dropped the coffee. 
So I'm telling the story, and then it shows Ooh, someone else, say Brad sorry. Garrett or somebody saying, and then a fox ran in front of her and she dropped the coffee after I said it. And then they show somebody, maybe the ubiquitous Duh. Billy Jensen, who was on, you know, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which you did last week, yes. who's on like 15 different podcasts now. Why is he on this? I don't know. He doesn't have anything to do with it. But yet he's on it talking about it. And so they have five different people saying, and then she dropped her coffee. And then a fox ran in front of her and she dropped her coffee. Why? Why? It doesn't add anything to the story. Especially when Mm -hmm. they have the person it really happened to, you know, memo to documentary makers. When you have people who actually experienced it, don't have some guy who wasn't there telling you what that person experienced when that person just told you what she's experienced. You know, and it's always some guy. Too doing this. It's always a guy. Almost like mansplaining brought to uh, a yes. new level. Well, it's translating for the men that might be watching. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. By saying the exact same words the woman yes. just said. Only with Although- a male voice so they'll listen to it. Anyway, go on. What's the next thing? Freshness. I'm taking away half a point because... Even though it may be an unfamiliar story to some people because it's fairly recent. Some podcasts like us have done it. There was a whole podcast about it. I think there have been some true crime. But it's not saturated. That said, it's not told in a fresh way that I find interesting. It's flat to me. It's flatly So you're told. taking a point on... Yes. What about repetition? It's very repetitive. I'm taking a point away <laughs> When you have four or five people telling you the same thing <laughs> over and over and over Does again. Does have any points? <laughs> yeah. That, that's six I've taken away so far. And, and then it, would, it was um, only a little over an hour, but, you know, with the commercial breaks, it would come back and they would repeat all this shit. And you don't need to do that in a show that's only an hour long. You don't need to have all these quotes repeated, especially, ooh, it's so weird in our small town. Ooh, if you wrote a book about this, nobody would believe it. Which they would, because let me tell you something, fiction (laughs) books do have intricate plots. Do these people even read fucking fiction? (laughs) Then I'm back to Um, cliche. So yeah, when you have four or five people saying the exact same thing in a row, it's fucking repetitive. So yeah, I'm taking away a point. Number 10 is beating the drum. Yes. I'm taking away a point. Okay, so you have pretty much taken away every single thing. It has three points. How does it have that many? There were like three things I didn't take away anything for. All right. But the daughter of the serial killer who lives in Texas, they fly her up to New Hampshire so she can have have a forgiveness meeting, and that's my wording, not theirs, with Ugh. some victim related people in the graveyard and i find that all very gratuitous if i were to have a meeting like that i wouldn't want cameras there i feel like it lessens the impact when it's just obviously this thing staged for it makes me very uncomfortable also what does she have to do with it she's the daughter of the serial killer she shouldn't be whatever well it was a forgiveness meeting she feels guilty yes And there were some other issues. For instance, they do have clips and voiceovers from WMUR, the Manchester TV station. But then they have other ones that sound like they're fake. And it's just someone, three bodies were found in a barrel in Allenstown, New Hampshire today. You know, it just sounds fake, which really fucking bugged me and didn't help. Jeff Strelzen, by the way, the New Hampshire Associate Attorney General, it's like he doesn't age. He was in like our Louise Chaput thing and he's like... Like, you know. Dorian Gray. 
Yeah. Oh, oh, here's something that goes in one of these categories. I would say probably visuals. I didn't take any points off, but looking yes. back, I'm going to take a point off Uh-oh. for visuals. Like they have the father of Denise Bowden, who is the mother of the little girl, blah, 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 who ended up just totally disappearing. And they have him talking. So they were obviously in Manchester. They have the guy, Manchester, New Hampshire. They have the guy in his living room talking. But yet, instead of giving any like establishing shots of Manchester, they just show the podcaster guy sitting there in his studio and, and stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, show me the neighborhood of Manchester she I grew know. up in. It's a very interesting city. Show the friggin' neighborhood where she grew up. You interviewed his father. He's on video sitting in his living room have some b-roll of that shit with the house she lived in when she disappeared I know, usually they show stuff like and there was a lot of that it wasn't just that it was they missed opportunities for visuals so yeah i'm taking away a point so now it has two points wow so would you recommend it <sighs> um <laughs> i would i would recommend it if you're interested in that story it's a very complicated story they don't do a good job of sorting out the... In fact, I'm going to take a point away for um, missing pieces because I just remembered there are things... They don't do a good job of sorting out the strings and, and there are some things that they miss. If the things that I've talked about bother you, you may not want to watch it, or you may, just so you can see that I'm not fucking exaggerating, especially the fucking, fucking talking at <laughs> Billy fucking Jensen. Why is he even there? <laughs> Brad Garrett, do your fucking job. It's one job. I could have been there and and done what Brad Garrett did. Don't understand it. I do not understand it. Another thing that was weird is there were no credits, so I don't even know who to blame for it. It started out with this generic narrator woman, who I don't know if she's usually on 2020 or not, introducing it in a very generic way. Then they showed it, and then it ended, and there was no, like, credit roll. And I wanted a credit roll... Oh, it was just... <laughs> Why don't I take away the final point and we can just okay. get it zero Ooh, points. Have you ever had a zero point one before? I think so, yeah. I've had one. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> zero points. All right. Zero. I mean, I know it's hard to make a film, and who am I to criticize? That was good. But a better film could have been made of this. And it seemed like it was a whole mm. promotional thing for the podcast, even though it came out in March and the podcast was maybe two years ago. Yeah. So anyway. Well, that's good. Okay. <laughs> Thank so I guess you. But Thanks. anyway, but I think we should wrap it up. It's okay. um, getting light. I'm yes. going to turn into a pumpkin. Okay. You can find out everything you need to know about us at crimeandstuffonline.com. Yes. Thank you, everybody. It connects to our social media and has yes. all our episodes. <laughs> yeah. and... Okay. Good night. Thanks for listening. What do you think, little kitten? What do you think? Do you want to meow? Do you want to say something? No? No? I thought you'd say something, but all you did was try to scratch me. Little kitten, my little baby girl. Yes.